Welcome to Walter Edges Journal. Today my guests will be authors Dorothea Benton Frank and Roy Hoffman, both residents of the coastal United States, Dottie from the Low Country of Carolina and Roy from the Gulf Coast of Alabama. They've got new novels out where hurricanes and storms, both natural and human, tell the tale. I'll have that conversation with Dottie Frank and Roy Hoffman, but first, your NPR Newsbreak. With me on the telephone from the studios at Montclair State University is South Carolina author Dorothea Benton Frank, and we're going to talk about her latest book, her 14th book set in South Carolina, The Hurricane Sisters. And Dottie, welcome back to the journal. Thank you, Walter. I, I couldn't help but notice on the on the cover of your new book, it says New York Times bestselling author, and I know that this book has been on the New York Times bestseller list. Of your 14 books, how many have been New York Times bestsellers? All of them, actually. <laughs> it's kind of shocking, but all of them, yeah. Hey, hey, that's great. You know, yeah. A, a young woman who grows up on Sullivan's Island, and you've got 14 New York Times bestsellers. Go figure. <laughs> well, perhaps it's because you write something people want to read. I hope so. I certainly hope so. Well, this book took a little bit of a, a dark turn from the others. Yes. And you want to talk about how that came about? Yeah, um, most definitely. Uh, You know, I was actually about a third of the way through the first draft of this novel, and I had wanted to write about um, someone who did development work for a nonprofit Mm -hmm. because I've done a lot of it myself. And so I was trying to choose a charitable organization. Um, And so I chose one, and then in doing some more research, I bumped into a very disturbing fact on the Internet in in that South Carolina is the number one state in the country where more women die from domestic homicide than any other state. And I thought that this cannot be. This is, you know, this is my my heart and, and my soul. People say that a lot and throw it around. But for me, it's really true. I mean, I've made a career and I've spent... you know, the better part of half of my life writing about how much I love South Carolina and how unique and magical and special it is. And then to discover something like this just really blew me away. Um, And so the more I dug around for a little more information, I found out that 1,800 women die every year in the country from domestic violence and that thousands and thousands of women call for help and there are no beds and there's nowhere in a shelter for them to go. And, you know, they, they cannot get the help that they need because the problem is just much, much bigger than, than we ever thought. Or certainly, the, I mean, maybe you know about this. I was completely unaware of this because, you know, I live in a bubble with Peter Frank and we have a happy marriage and a great life. And, you know, I think I, I plump my pillows on my sofa harder than I ever spanked one of my children. You know, I, it's just so this whole domestic violence thing is just unbelievable to me. And I felt like, well, if I knew this, then I had to tell my readers about it. Well, Neela and I both knew more about it. I mean, she knew because, as you know, she worked for so many years in in state government and and with foster care and and child issues. And sadly, in South Carolina, it's not just women, but it's also children. It is children, and it's also men. I mean, if you look at the national data, 15% of all um, domestic violence is directed toward men. Yeah. It's hard to fathom, isn't it? I mean, it's, you know, but you and I are peace-loving people. So, you know, I, and I have a bad temper. You know, when I have a bad temper, it's bad, right? But I would never <laughs> raise my hand to someone. Can't imagine. Well, you know, it's it's one of those things that it, it cuts across race and class. Yes, it does. In fact, it's one in six people. You know, one in one in six people in a room have suffered some kind of domestic violence. I mean, when I was on book tour this summer, I made 30 different, I went to 30 different cities. And in every single one, you know, I would talk about domestic violence just a little bit because, you know, I don't have a solution for it. That's for sure. I mean, my job here is just to, to raise awareness and to tell a good story and to entertain my reader. And that's my job, you know. Um, but in every single crowd, 
at least one person came forward and would whisper in my ear or pass me a note to say, I'm a survivor of domestic violence. I'm a survivor. My sister's a survivor. We lost my niece. We lost so-and-so. I mean, it was just, you know, it was, un it was really um, a very powerful and profound book tour this summer. But I just felt like, you know, I was so reeling by the information that I, I just, you know, I felt really compelled to write about it a little bit. I mean, it's not the whole story of this book, you know, thank goodness. But it just, it. I tried to demonstrate how abuse goes on, and it's right under your nose, and you don't even know it. Well, and in among the characters in your book, the Hurricane Sisters, it's multi generational. That's right. And and that's and no one wants to admit it. Nobody wants to talk about it. It's the big, deep, you know, dark, dirty secret. Well, there's a happier side to this book as well, but. Oh God! Th thank the Lord. Sure. Um, but I, w I was just curious as as to why. I mean, you've you've dealt with a lot of topics in your books, but this this one, I wondered how because I did get to read an advanced copy. I thought, now is this going to make the New York Times bestseller list when domestic abuse is part of it? And then, wow! In the first two weeks it was out, there you were. Yeah, the book debuted at number three which is unbelievable to me. I mean, I was I was completely stunned by that. But, you know, especially because the summer, the June list is a very difficult list because everybody and their, their dog has written, has written a book. I mean, it's, you know, it's David Baldacci, Nora Roberts, James Patterson, Stephen King. I mean, blah, these big guys, mm -hmm. you know. So for me to land at number three the first week, we were all just sort of astonished and thrilled, got to say, thrilled. As well you should be. And again, I'm simply amazed that almost every, it's almost every 12 months, Dottie Frank's got a new book. Well, because that's what I do, Walter. You know, it's <laughs> pretty much all I do. You know, and my email in response to this book has been very interesting, too. Probably one out of 100 will say, you know, I don't want to hear about this kind of thing from you. You know, go preach to somebody else. I'm like, all right, whatever. But then the other 99 say, wow, you know, we didn't realize, you know, how, how pervasive this is in our society. And thank you for bringing it up. Thank you for bringing it to our attention. Thank you for telling me. So I'm glad I, I'm glad I, I mean, I took a real gamble to do this. That's for sure. But it, it's worked out well. Well, I'm delighted that you took the gamble because it's a story that needs to be told. I mean, we've kept this hidden in the attic like Crazy Aunt June or Uncle Joe or whatever, and nobody wants to talk about it. No, nobody wants to talk about it. You know, and if you want to know what you can do about it, number one, you can talk about it, you know, and just to make it a subject that you can talk about. And number two, you can learn how to recognize the signs of domestic violence, um, you know, because there is, there is a, a personality type that does this kind of thing and, and then learn where you can go to get help. And if you look around and you find a friend or a sister or a niece or a granddaughter or whoever that you suspect may be in a, you know, a tenuous situation, it would be the best thing if you could teach them how to get help safely mm -hmm. because it's in the leaving that's the most dangerous time for the woman or the man or the children, you know, because he says, you know, the guy will say, if you leave, I'm going to kill you. You know, and 1,800 times a year, they do. It's incredible. I know you and Pat Conroy are good friends there in, in Charleston. And earlier in the year, I interviewed Pat and his all but one of his siblings, and they talked about what they faced growing up in the house with the great Santini. Yeah, well, it wasn't much different than what went on in my house either, unfortunately. I mean, the only good news in our family was that my my father, when he came back from World War II, I mean, he was the poster child for post-traumatic stress disorder, no doubt about it. And he just beat the living daylights out of my brothers. He never hurt my sister or me. I was just a little tiny thing at the time. But it, he was, you know, he was a bad, bad guy. He had a very violent temper. But, you know, he was always the most popular guy in the room, too, like Santini, I guess, right? Everybody loved him and thought he was, you know, hilariously funny and terrific. And But behind closed doors, he was quite a different person, you know. And, and then, I mean, my sister tells me, you know, my sister, she says, you know, that at Daddy's funeral, you know, there was no one cried. I mean, because people, you know, in the, in the family, within the family, they were relieved because they lived in terror of him. I mean, my father died at 41 years old of a massive heart attack. Um, big type A personality. Now, you were the anyway, baby, right? You know, it was a long time ago. Sorry? You were the baby in the family. Oh, gosh, yeah, by, by a lot. I'm, I'm the whoops baby. <laughs> <laughs> there's Lynn, Billy, Teddy, Michael, and then 10 years later, there's me. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> Which is okay. I, I'm, I'm glad to be there. Just glad to be here. Well, let's, let's get, let's, first of all, 
set the stage for our, for our listeners with your book, The Hurricane Sisters. And you've got wonderful characters, but the three sisters really are three generations of, of women. Yes, they are. And the hurricane is really, you know, kind of that internal storm um, that goes on. I mean, there is an actual hurricane, but it's not nearly as dangerous as the hurricane within them. You know, so you have the grandmother, Maisie, who's 80, and she's just, she's wonderful. She's just eccentric, and, you know, she has a boyfriend, Skipper, who's 65, so she's quite the scandal. And she calls it her, um, calls him her boy toy. That's right, and uh, <laughs> I guess he sort of is, and he owns a llama farm. So, you know, you start out with Maisie's 80th birthday party, and it's all, you know, it looks like everything's just fine, and then as the story goes along, you find out that her daughter is the executive, not the executive director, she's the uh, development director for my sister's house in Charleston. And actually, that's Mackie Moore, who's a good friend of mine. Um, so you know, anyway, so I, Mackie was a great help to me in, you know, telling me how it goes and, and giving me lots and lots of resources so that I could make this story right, because this is not a story you want to tell and goof it up, you know. But anyway, so... There's the daughter who um, runs my sister's house development program, and then she has a daughter herself who's just graduated from college and is trying to find her legs in the world. But this is about the whole thing of trying to find your dreams, you know, about living your dream. And, you know, we, we've all told our children in this generation that they're smarter, better, luckier, whatever, and that they can go do anything they want to do um, and that they're so special. You know, so then they get out of college and then they find out, wow, maybe they're really not so special that they've got to take these entry level jobs and how can they live on this money? And, you know, it's it's very difficult, I think, to be a college graduate today. And I also think it's very difficult for kids just out of college. I mean, unless you've had the good fortune to, you know, be a doctor or a lawyer, have a full ride scholarship or you're some star athlete. I mean, for the average kid coming out of school, they're not making much money, you know, and it's very hard for these kids to get along um, without some help from their family. So you've got the grandmother who always wants to help and the mother who's always telling her daughter, you know, get your head out of the clouds. You need to be more practical about life. When in fact, you know, it turns out the daughter is a, a real talent. She does possess a real special and unique talent, but, you know, and how do parents tell the difference? So there are a lot of other questions in, in this story. Well, see, that's, a, that's one of the things is that Ashley has talent, but Mama Liz is really living in another generation. And she's terrified. Yeah. Because all she does all day long is deal with battered women and children. And if Ashley isn't going to marry somebody properly south abroad, then she needs to get a real a real job. She doesn't need to try to be an artist and, you know, make a living that way. Right. That's exactly and right. And that's, that's kind of sad. It's very sad. It's very sad. But, you know, this is the value of family, so there's more than one opinion. So, you know, there's a lot of confusion in there and a lot of denial in there. And, you know, the big, the big secret, of course, you know, eventually is exposed and then everybody finally starts telling the truth to each other. Can we say that without ruining the, the story for folks or you want to keep that? I don't know. I mean, I think, <laughs> let's keep that one between us. But it, it, it takes a while for people to get to to get to the secret, you know, and it's only when one of them is terrifically jeopardized or in real physical danger that the truth starts to come out. You and I before have talked about the male characters in your book, and uh, sometimes you have a love-hate relationship, sometimes they're the bad person, but <laughs> this, this, you know, Walter. I'm just a writer. You know, know. just doing what I, I have and, to do to make and, the story and, work. And you're, ma- and you're married to this dear, sweet man, Peter, who doesn't resemble oh. anybody in your books. No, he's a peach. And in fact, you dedicated this book to Peter. I usually do dedicate them to Peter, mm-hmm. except when my children squeak, and then I dedicate it to them. <laughs> <laughs> there are enough books to go around for everybody. Fortunately, yeah. Well, we we, we haven't mentioned the son in the book. IV, which in, as, as a lot of uh, Southern families do, when somebody is the fourth, they call them IV. He's not your typical son, in, at least in his parents' eyes. No, no, he's, he's a pretty flamboyant guy. But he's also a straight-up wonderful person, you know, for as much as, as his orientation, you know, takes him away from his parents and their lives. And, I mean, he lives on the West Coast, and, you know, he lives with a guy who's Asian, how do you like them apples? And um, so, oh gosh, I mean, they're they're very funny characters. I think. Well, the 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 question is, somebody might ask, is 
with, with the problem the fact that he had an alternative lifestyle or the fact that the person he was living with was not Caucasian? I think I think both were a big problem because, you know, Liz and her husband, I mean, they're very, very conservative people, very conservative. Well, and the husband is Clayton. That doesn't stop Clayton from having an affair. Well, it was an accident, if you ask Clayton. <laughs> he accidentally had an affair, yeah. Which, Doesn't last long, which, though. That's the good news. Which his children discovered, right? <laughs> right. They sure did. They sure did. That uh, Asian partner of uh, Ivy was wearing Google Glass and gets it. he makes a little movie out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, whoops. <laughs> Oh, golly. Got to think about what you're wearing when you go ring somebody's doorbell, I guess, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or not wearing. (laughs) Oh, dear. That's a very funny scene, I think. Bringing everybody together at at the end, and again, we don't don't want to tell any secrets, but I I liked what you talked about, the the title, the Hurricane Sisters. Yes, they are are on Sullivan's Island, and they're not the sisters. They're the three generations of the women in the family. That's right, and her, her best friend. But the emotional hurricane that that each of these characters live with, and like you've done in several of your your other novels, you let each character tell his or her story. But then at the end, the three women they are they're sitting there and they've all come face to face with what at least Maisie and Liz were denying most for most of their lives. And, and so was Ashley. I mean, even when Ashley's in it herself, she doesn't want to call it what it is. And, you know, so they have this moment of recognition. I mean, I I think it's a real watershed for all of them, you know. Let's talk about now the the role. Sullivan's Island, once again, the South Carolina landscape plays a major role in one of your books. You didn't have a chapter called Sullivan's Island, Let the Island Speak for Itself. I might do that next time. Let's hear from the sand dunes. <laughs> <laughs> the sand, the sand dunes, and yeah, let the seagulls talk to us. Oh golly, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, Sullivan's Island is the womb, isn't it? I mean, that's where I grew mm-hmm. up, so that's the womb for me. So when I want to really make somebody appear to be, you know, living in a, a little paradise, then I put them on Sullivan's Island. I guess. I mean, it's all unconscious. It's not a conscious thing. But when I look back at it, I go, wow. You know, I guess that's the case. I mean, certainly, and it's Charleston and it's the low country, you know, where all of my characters come to to straighten their lives out. Of course, your <laughs> sister Lynn would say it's out of stove, even though she grew up in South <laughs> She certainly would. Everybody says, well, when are you going to write a book named Edisto? And I say, well, you know, you know, Paget Powell actually already did that. And, uh, you know, my sister lives there, so, you know, I don't want to mortify my sister. I know that you're well into the next novel. We won't talk about that specifically, but want to give us a clue as to where you're headed? Yeah, sure. I mean, well, first of all, I'm looking for a title. So if anybody has an idea for a title, I'd certainly love to love to hear it. Um, the story, in a nutshell, is about middle-aged women who can't afford to retire. And so what do they do? Well, you'll have to read it and see. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's really, this one's really a lot of fun so well, far. I assume you'll we'll find out later if you're taking, how far you're taking middle age, how you define middle age. Well, middle age doesn't mean if you're 60, you're going to live to be 120. You know, I just think it's about people in general who get to, you know, what's supposed to be their retirement years and they cannot afford to retire. Okay. And it's the things they, they'll do to pay the bills. Well, same time next year, we can discuss that. In The Hurricane Sisters, Dottie, you have certainly created a very interesting cast of characters. I don't want to say it's the best group you've ever done because you have... You've got 14 books out there, but it's a very different story. Yeah, it is. And it is because I think I was so in shock when I learned what I learned. And then the more I read and the more I learned, the more in shock I was. I couldn't get over it. You know, and I just I just felt this like very pressing need to tell everybody about it. It's interesting to learn in your emails and Facebook responses how people have reacted to the story. I'm telling you, only I, I thought I was going to get so much hate mail from this and people saying they were never going to buy my books again and whatever. And, you know, I, I have a few of those. And you know what? That's OK. Maybe I'm not for everybody. That's fine. Basically, at this point in my life, you can't really hurt my feelings. <laughs> you know, so I don't take this stuff personally. <laughs> you know, one of these days, I really am going to write my book about politics. They're all kind of stories. 
When I get that, when I tee up that book, okay, I'll call you. <laughs> okay. And we'll, we'll do the Walter Edgar's 10, 10 most bizarre moments in South Carolina history and put it together in a book. Uh, you want to limit it to 10? I, I, you know, I can, I can only write 400 pages. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my 100,000-word limit. Oh, okay. Oh, gosh. Well, Dottie, we're about to run out of time. Is there anything you'd like to yeah. say for our listeners before we sign off today? No, just, you know, thank you. I mean, thank you to everyone who came to my book signings, who bought my books, you know, or took them from the library and read them and thought about this issue. And thank you for supporting your, you know, local battered women's centers. And, and uh, you know, that's it. I, I just, I'm forever in their debt and yours. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. And I look forward to it also, Walter. I do every year. Well, the one that you're working on for next year, I've got friends who are my age who have not been able to retire. That's right. There you are. I think we're going to call this one Last Woman Standing, (laughs) but my um, protagonist's name is Lisa Sharkey, and so we've been fooling around with calling it Lisa Sharkey Takes a Bite Out of Life. (laughs) Um, But we've got a lot of different titles. One's worse than the other, but we'll see what happens. Anyway, Walter, it's always a pleasure. Dorothy Benton Frank... It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show to talk about your latest book, The Hurricane Sisters. Thank you so much. This is Walter Edgar's Journal, and that was a great conversation with Dottie Frank. Up next is a conversation with Gulf Coast writer Roy Hoffman. With me in the Scanner studio today is Roy Hoffman, one of the authors of what's been called the Gulf Coast Renaissance from Pensacola to New Orleans through Mobile and Biloxi. And Roy's written a new novel called Come Landfall. We've had him on the show before. We've talked about Chicken Dream and Corn, his book Almost Family, which won the Lillian Smith Prize. Now Roy is a full-time author, but at one point he was a major feature writer for one of the oldest newspapers in the American South, the Mobile Register. And so, Roy, welcome back to the journal. I'm delighted to be here. Okay, before we get into Come Landfall, let's talk a little bit about your career path from growing up in Mobile, Alabama, to New York, big-time newspaper. Then you come back and really, for about a decade, have this incredible charge to write real stories about real people. Mm-hmm. And then the world changes. Mm-hmm. So right. let's start off. I know you grew up in Mobile. You and I have driven through the streets together. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You know, I grew up in Mobile. I was born in 1953. My grandparents were Eastern European Jews who, by design, came to America and by chance ended up in the Deep South. My grandfather, Morris, grew up in a shtetl in Romania and made his way to America around the year 1900. My grandmother, Mary, had already come here maybe a couple of years earlier um, and had some family members in the New York area. They met and married in Brooklyn. My grandfather, as a new American, was just learning the language. He used to kid her when they would date in Prospect Park, so you think I'm a good prospect, you know, that (laughs) love of language and, and so on. And they began their life in New York City, but my grandfather was a small-town boy. He really didn't like the cold weather. He was overwhelmed, I believe, by living in Brooklyn and by some of the attempts to get a foothold in such a crowded and hectic and frenetic and often um, seemingly merciless community up there. So when my uncle, my dad's elder brother, was born in 1907, they decided they wanted a place that was a little smaller, a little easier perhaps to make a name for themselves and to get a little store, maybe a little piece of property or something. So leaving my grandmother Mary behind uh, and the firstborn, Morris set out with so much money in his pocket allotted for travel, got to a place, we're still not sure, maybe Baltimore, Philadelphia, uh, decided that he would just stand his ground, went 
into the train station while changing trains, took the money out of his right pocket, put it down at the window, and the conductor counted it out. It was $8.42. And my grandfather says, I want a ticket to a small town, maybe hot weather, a uh, good place for family. And the man said, well, that'll take you to Mobile, Alabama. The next train leaves in 10 minutes. And it is the way in which chance, as the as this is a story with so many Americans, um, how so many of us ended up where we are. And then my father was born over the store on Dolphin Street and that world of Old Dolphin, the international community of the Gulf Coast town with Eastern European Jews and Lebanese and Mediterranean folks and Greeks mm-hmm. was a world unto itself. And there are vestiges of this in so many southern towns. Oh, yeah. Uh, but that was one that I wanted to bring back to life. So... I came along as, you know, the, the second generation, the son of the immigrants who, and growing up, growing up over the store, and from a family where no one had gone to college, uh, my dad became a college graduate and then became a lawyer. And there was that great father-son legacy, which there are times when my career has been more down. I thought, well, maybe I should have taken my father's advice and been a lawyer, too. But <laughs> Actually, uh, I could, knowing you're a dad... I could see him having that conversation with you right now. Now, he would just probably say, now, boy, you know what you should have done. That's right. Nothing to fall back on. Uh, you know, is that old expression, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves yeah. in three generations? Here we are both in shirt sleeves, as a matter of fact. Well, I know. Well, so I became a writer. So you became a writer. But you went to college at? I went to Tulane uh, University in my undergraduate days. And when I was there... I started in pre-med and also thought about, you know, law, but I started writing for the college newspaper, and I loved going out and meeting characters in the French Quarter. They didn't restrict me to the campus. They say, you can go out and write about anything you want. So writing about the bakery that was open all night and so on at the age of 18 and 19 gave me that love of going into strange and colorful places with the passport of a journalist badge Mm -hmm and having people who might ordinarily be invisible to the folks outside of their little circle tell me their stories. Mm-hmm. And I also first experienced that joy of giving them some ink, taking their photograph, having their stories put down. You wanted to be adventure. a writer, so you headed to New York? I headed to New York. My uh, big sister, Cheryl, my beloved late big sister, Cheryl now, she passed away uh, some years ago, had moved to New York, and she worked her way up in television and became a TV director. And I would go up to see her when I was a little boy and then got to be a teenager. And I loved the glamour of the city, the notion of these celebrities mixed in with regular folks and the bright lights of Broadway. And I was still under that allure of the generation Thomas Wolfe and those going forward and those earlier who felt somehow to affirm your interest in the arts, particularly in writing, meant that you were going to go north and you were going to spend some time in New York City. But you know, Walter, it had an unintended benefit for me in that growing up, as with your family in Mobile, I was known as a Hoffman. People knew my dad. They respected him, and that was wonderful. They knew my three big sisters. You know, just as with you, you were, people knew the Ernest Edgar Jr. family. And Whereas that was defining for a young writer, it also felt a bit constricting. You know, what can I write that won't hurt somebody's feelings? Or what should I write to make somebody proud? You know, you're still under that feeling like you want to please people. You want to be a good boy. And then you go to New York City and people don't care where you're from. They don't care what your last name is. And I think for me, it enabled me to sit in a small room, write a novel, Almost Family, that was published when I was in my late 20s, set in a fictional version of my home in a fictional mobile in a way that I could not have had I stayed in that fictional home in mobile. Okay. You're sitting in that room in New York City. You're writing what really was a wonderful novel, is a wonderful novel. What were you doing for your day job to put beans on the table? Well, I did all kinds of... um, Uh, part-time work. I worked at New York Magazine as an underling for a year. I worked at WNET 13 doing research. I worked for some writers who were very prominent, who I had met, doing research for them, going out and doing fact-checking. It was really the end of that era 
I believe, when you could go to New York and it was like a Paris of the 30s and you could live pretty cheap and get odd jobs and do temp work and you could stay up late talking about the future of art and literature and culture and um, then go home and uh, clackety-clack write your novel till 5 a.m. we got to remind people that you're dealing with probably a non-electric typewriter. Right, exactly. Which, <laughs> non-electric typewriter. Which, type which does make noise because every time you return, <laughs> right. it goes bing. The sound of industry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, okay, so... Your first novel, unlike for a lot of folks, your first novel is a huge critical and commercial success. Well, I appreciate that. And um, as a matter of fact, there are plans that the University of Alabama Press, which now has the rights to it, was originally published by Dial Press, intends to do a 30, 30th anniversary edition of it. Okay, and I've written an essay to go with it as a forward. Well, your your story in New York, it's, it's almost as, as if you were the favored son. I mean, it's not what happens when people go to New York to write. Your first work doesn't end up in somebody's uh, file 13, (laughs) but it's successful. But that success in New York leads you back home where you are going to start writing about. Yes, yes. And not only that, at the book signing for Almost Family in December of January of 1983, a young woman walked in to buy a copy and I signed it to her and we exchanged phone numbers and started visiting, and now Nancy, my wife, and I have been married almost as long as that novel has been out. <laughs> as a matter of fact, she's here with me today at the studio. So it was this time in which you felt like, wow, I can publish a novel and I can meet a beautiful woman. Or, 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 now, That's did, out. Now, now, did you meet Nancy in New... Where, did you, where was she that book? She came in to buy a book in Mobile, Alabama. Okay, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Nancy, <laughs> I know Nancy's a mobile girl. She's a must. She came in to buy it, yeah. a Mosteller, and, and she bought it. And I had known her brother in high school, and pretty soon there we were, uh, you know, enjoying um, a drink and a Mardi Gras ball. And I said, well, I'm never moving back to Mobile, Alabama. You know, the paper was um, not very well thought of at the time. Uh, it seemed to be a place that, whereas it had been great for my grandparents and, and for my parents, I was of the new generation. So I loved being in New York City, and I still had no intention of moving back. But lo and behold, it was moved forward to 1996. I was home visiting one summer, Nancy and I, and our daughter, who was a little girl at the time. And um, as it turned out, the Mobile Press Register, of all places, had become this rich regional publication. The Sunday papers were as thick as a doorstop. They were running these long Sunday features. They were attracting all kinds of talent. And there was a man there named Bailey Thompson who since passed away. And the editor-in-chief, Stan Tyner, who eventually went on to the paper in Biloxi and won a Pulitzer during Hurricane Katrina, they said, why don't you come aboard for a year? We'll call you writer-in-residence. We're going to break the mold. We're going to treat this like okay. it's Rolling Stone. All right, no, yeah, I was going to say, no, wait a minute. Newspaper having a writer in residence. Universities have writers in residence. But Bailey Thompson, and I was glad I got to meet him before he, mm-hmm. before he died. Great guy. But I think that was really his idea. It was his idea. You're absolutely right. It wasn't my idea. It was his okay. idea. I said, we're going to take this traditional form of the paper and make it an outlet for narrative nonfiction. Well, narrative nonfiction is a very common term these days, you know, in, in nonfiction, creative nonfiction and so on. But he said, why not? This lands on everybody's doorstep in Mobile, Alabama every morning and, and the area. And I began to think of the paper as a serialized novel. You know, what happens the next day? What happens the next day? And let's go out and write about the community here, carte blanche. You go out and find the stories. So it was with great delight that I traveled old Highway 90 and wrote about how it had changed since I had lived there and grown up there as a boy. It was with delight that I went and followed the Hispanic migrant workers. And actually back home, Journeys Through Mobile, which was a collection largely of those pieces, is just now going into Kindle this very fall, which is good because even though the book is still in print, Mm You know, physical books get harder to find. I mean, there is a long piece in there. It's a profile of a Holocaust survivor, Alma Fisher. She was in Auschwitz. What made her even more unusual if she survived Auschwitz? Growing up, she was best friends with Ava Braun, 
who became Hitler's bride. Why? Ava Braun's father was her first grade teacher. They lived around the corner from each other. Well, Lord knows their lives went in different directions. Oh, did they? But she ever? lived in how? She somebody told me she moved here. She married a man here who was also a survivor. They were in. He was in the timber business. She never wanted to tell her story. But suddenly she was on in years. There were Holocaust deniers. People heard these rumors about her. So we sat down just like you and I are sitting, and we talked for hours on end. And we wrote this huge piece. It was as long as a magazine piece. And what was great about that and the fact that there are few outlets like this anymore in community papers is that people in New York or L.A. or Chicago had seen lots of Holocaust stories. The people in Mobile may have, but it would have been at the movie theaters or in our national magazine. But here was somebody who lived down the block. Mm-hmm. Wow. Brought it home. Thinking, thinking about other stories, you know, the fellow who's fishing on the, on the pier in Fairhope. Yes. Right. Uh, the quilter from upcountry Alabama. The Vietnamese yes. fisher folk who have moved into Biola Battery and all, actually all along the Gulf Coast. Right, right. Um, and not only that, the fact that they would tell me their stories for a paper that was local. Yeah, but it's amazing that you were given this freedom. And the one-year stint turned into, <laughs> turned in 1996. Right, still there. It, it was a few years before you and I <laughs> connected. But, you know, until a very few years ago, that's still where you were. Mm-hmm. The man who hired you, Bailey Thompson, moved on. Uh, to the University of Alabama, right? He was teaching yes. at the University of Alabama. Mm-hmm. Uh, management changed at what they then called the press register, merging the two mm-hmm. the afternoon and the morning paper. Mm-hmm. It kind of mirrored what's happened in a lot of cities, but sure. in Mobile it took a really different turn. They began to give you more specific assignments instead of just go out and search. Sure. Well, as the staff grew smaller as people took buyouts and as they didn't fill positions when people left, maybe somebody had a baby and decided not to come back. So it's a story all over. We became leaner and meaner. Everyone had to be, you know, all hands on deck. And uh, one of the things that I liked about a newspaper was that there were no prima donnas, and so you could not be perceived as one. And if you had downtime, suddenly instead of, well, why don't you go think about your next long feature project, your enterprise piece, it was, we really need somebody to go cover this or to help out with that. So I'm a team player. I didn't want to seem too precious of that. And I was always learning for myself as a novelist. Let's look now to come landfall. It's set on the Gulf Coast, primarily in Biloxi, in and around Biloxi, Mississippi. A storm, a hurricane, which you've been through several in right. in Mobile, but let's start talking about the the book and some and some of the characters and how you came to put this together. Come Landfall is set between the years two thousand and two two thousand and five on the coast of Mississippi, which I love both as a tourist and also as a writer because it throws up to us all of these juxtapositions of Old South and New with antebellum homes and the casinos. Keesla Air Force Base and the beaches, um, the tacky seashell emporia, and also that sense of history Mm -hmm. that's there. That's one of the things that attracted me about the setting. I was laid off at the paper in Mm -hmm. 2012, and I had more time to devote to my own writing again. And at that point, though, I had done a lot of work on Come Landfall, mostly through the reporting I had done on hurricanes, as well as living through them with my family. Some of the reporting I had done on the Vietnamese community, because there is a Vietnamese character in this as well. And some of the experiences I had interviewing, either as a regular feature writer or as the religion writer, interviewing people who lost loved ones in Iraq or Afghanistan, or young men who, there were young women, but I interviewed, you know, happened to have interviewed young men who came back and had lost a leg or, you know, badly, you know, wounded and this kind of thing. So all these things began to come together for me because when I was uh, growing up, there was a portrait on the mantle of a um, handsome young man, a stalwart Marine in his cap and his uniform. And I knew that was the man for whom I'm named, Roy, my mother's brother. But I didn't know much about his particular story until I got older. And it was also and still continues to be shrouded in mystery. He was a Marine. He was in the Philippines when the war broke out, became a prisoner of war in a POW camp in Manila. And then he became one of several thousand 
uh, servicemen who became a part of that episode known as the Hell Ships. They were put on unmarked Japanese freighters being taken to Japan to be used as slave labor. At times, they were torpedoed or they were strafed by uh, Allied bombers or subs, not knowing that there were prisoners of war secreted aboard. Back then, as opposed to now, Mm -hmm. very little information came out. There was a series of articles written maybe around 46 or so by a journalist up in Chicago, and I even referenced that in here. George Weller was his name, I believe, who wrote a series on the hell ships done by accounts. So I, I wanted to write about my uncle one day, but you know, Walter, I really saw the impact of his absence, the fact that his remains were never found. You know, he never came home as as sad and as, as dramatic as it would be to have somebody come back for burial draped in that American flag. Not to have anybody come back at all leaves this this kind of a hole in the heart, a sense of wondering. And, and, and his bride eventually had a nervous breakdown. She went on to make a new life for herself. And I always thought of her as Aunt Irene, and she would send holiday cards to my family. And we kept up with her. But this had been the early marriage for her. And it was not until 1947 that my grandfather actually got a letter from the War Department officially declaring Roy dead. And it said, but we you know, have no remains. All right. Well, just, to, just if you don't mind, in your family plot there mm-hmm. in, this, in Mobile Cemetery, is there a marker for him? There is one. Uh, in the Jewish Cemetery in Mobile, in the Robinton area, which is on my mother's side, next to the Hoffmans, there is a stone, and it said for Major Roy Robinson. He was, he would, I think he was posthumously got a, uh-huh. a, an advancement to major, um, lost at sea World War II, oh. and then the dates were just for for when he was. They came up with the date that you know he was last seen, and so uh, in a way it follows my interest in the people who aren't seen. You know the people who don't get ink. But you know Walter, there have been so many great war stories and so many great chronicles, and I sort of thought. What I might bring to this story would not be so much yet another chronicle of what someone went through in the middle of all this, but the impact on a family and that loss. I was going to say, in essence, you've told your Aunt Irene story, even though you— That's beautifully said. What what a beautiful insight. And let me tell you exactly what the linchpin for this was. I was in a bookstore in Birmingham, Alabama, Jake Reese's Alabama Booksmith, signing copies of Chicken Dreaming Corn— inspired by my grandfather's story in maybe 2005 or so. And a woman about my age came in with a daughter, maybe at the time who was about college age. And they had just moved there from somewhere up east. And this young woman said, I've always wanted to meet you. And I said, well, thanks. I have a fan. You know, great. You know, why? How do you know my work? And she says, well, my grandmother was married to a Marine when she was very young. I said, oh, my gosh, that was my uncle, Roy. And she said, yes. I said, so your grandmother is Irene? And she said, yes. And we began to talk. And I had written, as I do as a journalist, I had done some uh, a nonfiction piece about Roy for the Mobile paper and about another man from Mobile, a Baron Lyons, mm-hmm. who had also been in a hell ship. It, it, that gave me the license to kind of do research and to call up people and also to let the community know about these people from our community who had suffered through this episode. And I said, well, why do you have this interest now so much in your grandmother's experience? And she said, well, my grandmother is in a nursing home, and she's fading and confused, and she's become, begun asking us if we've heard anything from Roy, oh. anywhere mm. from home. And she said, it's as though my own grandfather didn't even exist. you know." So her grandmother w- went hurtling back to that early love like a picture in a locket, and that was the source of this. But dramatically speaking, I've written now enough fiction to know that the story about an aged woman sitting in a chair remembering back an early love, at least for me, doesn't have enough tension in it. So I have a young woman. I mean, very much a fictional takeoff. I've spent five minutes talking to this girl. So there are three characters who are central. There is Nana, the grandmother figure whose name is Christian. And she's the one who's lost. The... She's the one, right, who's lost. And then her granddaughter, Angela, 
who in the course of the novel begins to find out more about her grandmother's early love, her early husband. And it's those two stories that come together. And when I wrote this, the war in Iraq was just hot as blazes. And I had spent time at Keesler doing stories about Katrina and was fascinated by the fact they have all of these weather programs there and guys studying, you know, weather, combat weather. What happens with these high-grade, you know, um, uh, you know, weaponry we have? And it's more than just is it going to rain or it supports, like it's humidity and what, with the air pressure. And, and I was kind of fascinated with somebody who might be, like, in the weather program. So she falls in love with somebody who's in the weather program who is, as many people were in South Carolina and Mississippi and Georgia and Alabama, angry and they felt sense of urgency, and they felt that same kind of um, a, a gut-wrenching desire to do something. Yes. To do something. And this was a young character like that, because this is 2002 when mine begins. So Angela, the granddaughter, falls for somebody who's interested in and, and eventually goes to Iraq. And then there's a third character who becomes their friend, whose name is Cam, who was the daughter of a Vietnamese shrimper born on Mississippi soil but whose parents were in Saigon, in the fall of Saigon. And that's also a story of the Gulf Coast. And that makes this more of a Gulf Coast novel than perhaps an Appalachian novel or a uh, Piedmont novel or, you know, whatever it might be. Cam, through her father, knows her family's yes. history, which escaped from Saigon, was not easy. She lost a sister, yes. dis- disappeared when yes. the refugee ship yes. sank. But one thing that runs through all three of these women, all three of your protagonists, fall in love with somebody in uniform. Mm-hmm. Now, was that designed? It was not designed. That was really something that began to come out in a sort of an unconscious way. What did impress me, and I think what did fascinate me, that came about from my living in Alabama again, was how many young men and women I would meet who chose to sign up. You know, there's a gas station in Leroy, Alabama, that has a pegboard on the wall. I went in there to get gas one day up Highway 43, and it's filled with these little photographs of men and women in uniform, every branch, every age, every color, complexion of background, of person, and so on. And I said, who are all these folks? She says, well, those are all the people from right around here who are serving in the armed forces. And everybody comes in here to talk about their son or their sister or their mama, you know, how she, what's the word, what's the news? You know, I mean, we really carried this war, the, you know, in, in Iraq on our back, the South did. So, I, you know, I wanted to get closer to what that experience was like. And uh, perhaps, you know, your question also leads me to wonder uh, if it wasn't because it was never a path that I walked, mm-hmm. that it was kind of an intrigue for me of what this must be like, and for the women themselves, and it's really a story in which the women are sort of front and center. It you know perhaps represents um, a sense of stability, of uh, predictability, selflessness. These things don't always come through in these characters, mm-hmm. but these are the kinds of men that these women were at least initially attracted yeah. to. In their own way, and and the last one, Cam's boyfriend is a policeman. He's not a, right. not in the the service, and then the hurricane comes and. I want to say wipes everything clean, mm-hmm. more or less, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's right. Without giving away the ending. Without giving away the ending. Without giving and, away the ending. It's and, because I lived through hurricanes, because this is a hurricane place. Because Frank himself was somebody who was a student of weather. Now Frank C is Angela's husband. Husband, yes, yeah. yes. Who's who's the weather specialist in the Air Force, and also because as um, Hal Rains, who you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, who now spends part of his time in Fairhope, he spoke to me about the novel and gave it a nice endorsement as well, talked about this kind of biblical pattern, you know, of, of, of sort of flood and redemption, because there is a certain amount of religion in this book as well. I was also very much affected by some of the religion writing I was doing. I wanted as a Jew and as a humanist and as somebody who is interested in sort of multiple faiths and so on, I wanted to try to get close to the evangelical experience of, in this case, Frank as well, and the way in which he, through his interest in weather, also interpreted at times in terms of, um, you know, um, uh, religious signs and symbols. And there's a lot of that through the Bible. So that's all sort of woven through. Well, Roy, I always get authors to read a passage from their book. So if you would, please. Yes. This is from deep into the novel, 
Frank has been wounded. He's in Iraq. And Angela has been up almost all the night trying to find out news about him and has been staying with her, she and her grandmother staying together. And she's walked out from her small apartment on the Mississippi Sound onto the beach. On the beach, the fog enveloped her, and she felt comfort in being a woman adrift, unseen and without name, witnessed only by foraging gulls. She felt like those characters she had read about in the women in history class of the junior college who had waited for their loved ones gone off to fight in ancient places. One girl had been named Penelope, who had worked a loom to pass the time for her Odysseus, which had stretched to 20 years. Surely there were girlfriends and wives and husbands and boyfriends in her own time who had done the same on the side of the enemies, too, those who had waited while father, brother, husband, son went off to fight. Big Frank, Frank's grandfather in the Philippines, her own father in Vietnam, Frank, her husband in Baghdad, the yearners, the hopers, the patient and believing. Well, that's that's a great passage. And I hate to do that, but Alfred's given me the wind-up sign. So, Roy Hoffman, any last words for our listeners before we sign off? Even though the mode of delivery of writing is changing a great deal, and even though the media landscape is transforming every day, to write and to read is to enter into this ancient practice which is ongoing and which is as powerful and as transformative as ever. So I appreciate the fact that at age 61 I have been able to write books and able to express myself. I'm also appreciative of the fact that there are readers, hopefully they'll come to my book, but whatever book that they come to, who are still opening themselves up, walking in the shoes of other folks, going places in their imaginations and in their sensory impressions that ultimately, I feel, deepen our sense of humanity and make us even more alive in this all-too-brief time we have here. Roy Hoffman, the author of Come Landfall, thanks for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you so much, Walter. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. It was fun pairing two of my favorite writers together with their latest books because both of them dealt with the tempest, the hurricane, if you will, that individuals may face from nature and also in dealing with their families and struggling within themselves. Both writers are honest, and the landscape, whether it's the low country of Carolina or the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, are important characters in telling the tale. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. The views and opinions expressed by the guests on Walter Edgar's journal are their own and not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio.